Since the beginning, members of the NC Advocates for Justice have been raising their voices, speaking out on behalf of those who go unheard, joining their voices to oppose injustice and support fair treatment for everyone under the law. With this podcast, Voices of NCAJ, we'll listen to those members, lawyers and legal professionals who founded the organization, whose dedication and energy kept it going and guided it through growth, change and challenges. Each conversation will inspire us to meet the future with a unified voice that channels the strengths and accomplishments of our organization. Welcome to Voices of NCAJ. Thanks for listening to Voices of NCAJ. I'm your host, Amber Nimmicks. Today we have special guests who are going to give us a glimpse of what's coming up at Convention 2022. Morgan Jackson and Paul Shoemaker aren't NCAJ members, but we are excited to have them as guests at NCA Convention in Charlotte on June 18th. They will be discussing their favorite topic, North Carolina politics. To find out more about that event and everything else going on at Convention, go to ncaj.com convention. Before I introduce my guests, uh, let me share a few words about our podcast sponsor, our friends at Law Pods. Law Pods has made the whole podcast experience a breeze for us. They edit and engineer and make us sound great. Law Pods is a professional audio production company focused on helping lawyers make great sounding podcasts. They sweat all the details so you concentrate on the content. If you're thinking about podcasting, check them out at lawpods.com. So both of my guests today have deep backgrounds in North Carolina politics. Morgan Jackson is a co-founder of Nexus Strategies, a Raleigh-based political and public affairs firm. He has overseen some of the largest and highest profile political campaigns in state history, including senior roles with presidential, gubernatorial, and congressional candidates, as well as advising governors, U.S. senators, and members of Congress, Council of State members, legislative leaders, and the state Democratic Party. He currently serves as Chief Political Advisor to Governor Roy Cooper and Attorney General Josh Stein. Paul Shoemaker has been described as the data guy behind North Carolina Republicans. He is the founder and president of Capital Communications and co-owner of Strategic Partners Solutions. Paul is one of the longest-serving political consultants in the state and has created strategies for candidates at every level, including Senators Tom Tillis and Richard Burr. He has worked with members of the U.S. House of Representatives, the past three North Carolina House Speakers, three Chief Justices of the Supreme Court of North Carolina, and many members of the General Assembly. Morgan, Paul, welcome to the podcast. Great. Thanks for being here, Amber. Thanks for having us. I'm glad to be with you. Yeah, I'm excited. So I'd like to start by hearing your takes on the May primaries. News cycles move so fast that this seems a little bit like ancient history, but I'm Wondering what the outcomes of these races tell us about the political landscape in North Carolina. And um, Paul, I'll toss that to you. I'll start with the Republican side coming out of the primaries. Uh, I think going into the year, uh, most sides were looking at the U.S. Senate race and what that was going to be. At the end of the day, the attention really turned into the congressional races in the election of Chuck Edwards up in the western part of the state change the dynamics a little bit there, but we're going to have two competitive congressional races, one in the Charlotte area, one in the Raleigh area. Legislatively, not a lot of changes. We had a few incumbents that were double bunked that are not coming back. Uh, The real makeup, quite frankly, is that uh, both parties came out more or less unscathed, uh, somewhat united, and getting ready to start turning the attention on to the general elections. Morgan? 
So it was an interesting primary on several levels. First of all, we had some first that happened in this primary. Uh, as Paul talked about the congressional races, I'll start there. As he mentioned, there are a couple of really key. We have to, rem- we have to remember that new districts were drawn this past year. And so these districts, members are running in brand new districts. Some of them are similar to the districts they had before. Some of them are open seats where there were no incumbent. And so that has created an interesting dynamic and some interesting primaries that took place in the 13th district, sort of the collar counties around Wake County. And and as Paul mentioned, the Republican primary in the Western Congressional District was quite competitive as well. In the U.S. Senate race, uh, Democratic uh, former Chief Justice Sari Beasley had consolidated the field and several of her chief competitors had dropped out and actually never filed, uh, ultimately filed for the race. So she had a very easy win. Uh, she consolidated support very early on, raised a, a phenomenal amount of money. On the Republican side, uh, Congressman Ted Budd defeated Pat McCrory, as well as Congressman Mark Walker in that. A couple of firsts in that is the fact that the level of outside spending, and Paul and I will talk about this and what it relates to other races, but we saw a level of outside spending in a primary that was something that never happened before. Uh, when you see an outside group spend close to $15 million in a U.S. Senate primary, much more than either candidate uh, spent by far, which was incredible and certainly had an incredible impact on that. And it sets up a real dynamic for the fall where you've got the first African-American female nominee, the first African-American to lead a state ticket in North Carolina in 26 years, which is a which is a big deal and is very historic. And as I said, the first female. And then you've got Ted Budd uh, as the Republican nominee, who's probably the most conservative Republican nominee, most far right nominee since Jesse Helms, uh, the Republican Party is nominated. And it sets up, and Paul would agree, an extremely competitive state. We've seen North Carolina the last several cycles have the most competitive and most expensive. And Paul has won those and lived those U.S. Senate races in modern history. And I think we're headed towards another one this year. How was the turnout in the in the primaries? Did, can we tell anything about the interest in those races from how many folks came out? Let me address that real quickly, which I will tell everyone what drives turnout is a candidate's ability to have money spent to drive turnout. It's the voter interest in primaries and also in general elections are, are built upon who's satisfied and who's mad uh, and who's who's long-term activist. I worked in the uh, Chuck Edwards race in the 11th district. And for example, you had unaffiliated voters voting in Republican primary at 40 plus percent in early voting. And the average is below 20% in every other single congressional district across the state. It wasn't those voters necessarily were more interested. It was that we actually had a program targeting them and spending money to get them out to the polls. We had digital, we had phone calls, we had peer-to-peer texting. Those things are taking place. Turnout is a direct relation of dollars being spent. And also I'll add to it is I think we're in a pathway in North Carolina of increased voter turnout given the advantages that technology allows us to work smarter, better, and can easier to connect with voters about an upcoming election at a lower cost and price point. Those are the things that are driving turnout more so than any, any particular level of voter interest, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's fascinating. We saw in a lot of uh, legislative primaries where it was interesting is, is that there might be a primary on the Democratic side in the legislative district. But ultimately, more unaffiliated may have voted, even unaffiliated who had traditionally voted in a Democratic primary voted in the Republican primary, not because of that local legislative race, but as Paul said, driven by largely statewide. I mean, he, he talked about a, a, 
that 11th congressional district was the incredibly competitive with a ton of advertising and spending. But even if you look outside of that, the U.S. Senate race was on the Republican side. There was not a serious Democratic primary and therefore sort of the heat and light that come to voters and voters are paying attention to the television ads, everything that was happening, the direct mail that was dropping drove a lot of those unaffiliated to the Republican Party. Because if remember, in this state, if you're an unaffiliated voter, you could choose the ballot that you want. A lot of folks who had traditionally voted in a Democratic primary, we saw voting in Republican primaries because that's where the action was. Now, some of them were voting to to pick the candidate they thought were, was the uh, worst Republican for the fall, the most beatable Republican for the fall. And we appreciate their participating in democracy when they do that. <laughs> So so now that the primaries are all sorted out, what and and we know that there's going to be a huge interest from the national level on on these races. How big of a wave of a red wave if if it's going to be red are we going to see in the fall? Uh, and um what's the possibility that that it'll be more competitive than than a lot of people are saying? Well, here's and keep in mind I wear the I wear the red hat here or the Republican hat. The one thing I would tell you, and I've been through some polling numbers, recent polling numbers, an advantage for Democrats going into 2022 was that they did not have a divisive Republican primary at the top of the ticket in the U.S. Senate race. One of the, the, the things that's shaping right now is that Republicans and Democrats are growing further apart ideologically, and these general elections are going to be won in the um, suburbs and in, in, in urban North Carolina, not in rural North Carolina, if you look at statewide. To summarize that, North Carolina 2022, Republicans right now have the wind at their back. Problems for the Democrats going into 2022 is going to be uh, economics, gas price gases, things of that nature. We'll call it real kitchen table issues. However, we all need to realize this is a very different state, and the suburban urban areas of this state are not reflective of the North Carolina of the past. If I take the 2022 voter registration models and match them up to the 2014 Tom Tillis U.S. Senate race and look at the changes statewide that has taken place in Wake, Mecklenburg counties alone, that race would be dead even in a political environment. But the 2024 red wave year, that race would be dead even today because of changes that have taken place in this state in the last eight years, last seven and a half years today. If I factor in Guilford County, Forsyth County, Cumberland County, Orange County, Durham County, actually Northern Johnson, when you look at these buffer counties around these major urban counties, when I start factoring those, the advantage shifts to the Democrats. So we may hope, my side may be hoping for a red wave, they may be planning for a red wave, but if they want that wave, they're going to have to have that, and they're going to have to understand that it's going to be a less of an ideological fight, and it's going to be more of an issue-based fight. So that sounds like good news, Morgan. I agree with everything he said. I like it. Uh, I I, I do agree. Listen, I think there's several things. It's absolutely right now with inflation, gas prices, et cetera. It is a challenging environment for Democrats. There are other issues, as Paul talked about. You have to look at elections in situations in the marketplace in which you're operating in. It is not just about the global view of voters. It is about where those voters are and in which districts they live in. I look at places like in the General Assembly, as we think about uh, as Republicans are, are touting their ability potentially to, to take a supermajority. The truth is, if there's a path to the supermajority, they have to win the suburbs. And what we know is going to happen or what we believe is going to happen in another month, in this month, actually, is that Roe v. Wade is going to be struck down. What we see is when you talk about 
access and, and women's ability to make decisions about their bodies, that's incredibly important, especially to suburban women. When you look at the gun violence that we've seen in Uvalde, when you see in Buffalo and these other places, unfortunately, around the country, almost every day we have something else. This is something that parents are concerned about and safety of their school children, and they're concerned about the rise in gun violence. And these issues are incredibly important to suburban voters. They do not make decisions to vote on social issues or cultural issues. They make decisions to vote around the economy. They make decisions to vote about their education and their health care. And we continue to see those uh, a lot of those messages helping for Democrats. Again, I think you have to look at races situationally. Nationally, it looks like a challenging year for Democrats. But when you look at the races that Democrats have to win in North Carolina, to continue for Republicans not to be the supermajority, those are suburban, urban, suburban districts, which are, I give the advantage to Democrats in those districts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So at this point, because there wasn't a primary in the uh, primary on the Democratic side, there's been a lot of money spent already for Republicans. Um, does that does that put Sherry Beasley in a in a in a good position as she's going into the general? I think a couple of things. I think Beasley has had the ability to be able to raise money unfettered and be and be able to have clean air as a Democrat and tell her own story. And she started doing that a few weeks before the primary to introduce herself to voters and writ large. Republicans have spent a lot of time fighting each other and spending the the cash that they had. Beasley, we have to remember, had outraised both McCrory and uh, Bud combined, and she hasn't had to spend that money. And that's a good thing. That gives her an advantage. You know, independent expenditure money is incredibly important. We see it in every race that it gets more and more expensive and that the bulk of spending ends up being spent by independent expenditures. But it's incredibly important for a campaign to be able to have enough resources to tell their own story. Nobody can tell your story as a candidate like your campaign can. An independent expenditure can't. Independent expenditures do an incredible job, especially of attacking folks and bringing down your opponents. But at the end of the day, you need a compelling candidate and ability to tell their best story when they can, when they have the resources to do that. And Beasley does. Listen, this is going to be an, an ultra expensive race. As we talked about earlier, in 2020, the record was set and the record was broken from 2014 nationally about the amount of money spent in U.S. Senate races. Both North Carolina races, Paul was involved in both of those. And they were extremely tight races. And we're going to see a very competitive cycle this year when you're going to have, you know, for voters who who don't like politics, this is not going to be a good year. They need to figure out something to do besides watch television or be on their phones because those ads are going to chase them everywhere they go. Right. Yeah. One thing I think that's critical here is we all need to understand the marketplace of North Carolina. In fact, I, I describe myself as a marketing guy who happens to do politics. And you got to look at the marketing place. And we mentioned a little bit about the unaffiliates in the primary. But the reality is, is that the unaffiliates, this will be the first election history of this state where unaffiliates outnumber both parties. That's very critical. Now, when you look at the growth and let's put this into free market. In fact, I've told my clients on the Republican side, you say you're a free market conservative. So I always say, why the hell don't you apply that to your politics? Because you look at your marketplace, you're you're spending hundreds of millions of dollars every two years, and you're getting less and less of a percent of the market. That's not a good business model for success. Same thing is true on the Democratic side. The unaffiliates have decided they don't like either side. And they're going to be the ones who make the decisions on the outcome, quite frankly, in North Carolina, the U.S. Senate race. Not going to be the Republicans, not going to be the Democrats. It's going to be those unaffiliates. And that growth has exploded for the unaffiliates in these suburban urban districts. 
And so it, the question is going to be in 2022, is that will this be the year that we do the flip and the urban suburban makes the decision on who wins or who loses, except for the in, in, in 2020, the rural areas made the decision because of our increased turnout. We were able to offset our losses. We overperformed in that. And, and, the, and the real question about that's going to be is the role of Donald Trump. Now, here's the reason why I say that is that, you know, Trump mastered and maximized that turnout in the rural areas, does not necessarily bring the same win advantage in the suburban urban areas. And so for Republicans, the question is going to be on the statewide U.S. Senate race, can Ted Budd go out there and motivate urban vote, I mean, rural voters to participate at a level much higher to offset disadvantages in suburban urban with these unaffiliated. Not a, this is not unique to American politics, not unique to our country. Look at states like Pennsylvania. Look at Maryland. Suburban urban centers tend to grow and start to dominate. You, know, you look at, at, at New York State. We used to elect Republican senators, uh, Republican governors. Now, the, because of the population uh, uh, makeup, you know, it's going to be a pure urban-based vote that determines the outcome. And so the, if it doesn't happen in 2022, it will be 2024. And my side has to be able to do better with suburban urban voters, or they will find that the wind will be more into their face than it will be at their back moving forward. And, you know, let me make a point to follow up to Paul is that, and the data bears that out, and there's some pretty clear data that shows that while 2020 was a very challenging cycle for Democrats, uh, Roy Cooper was elected, Josh Stein was reelected. There were gains made in the legislature on uh, marginal gains, but Biden lost the state, lost the U.S. The Democrats lost the U.S. Senate race and some other uh, major statewide races. That was due to, as Paul said, first of all, the we had the largest rural turnout in North Carolina history in 2020. You have to remember that also that 81 percent of registered Republicans voted in 2020. That's a phenomenal amount. Uh, 75% of registered Democrats voted, which was the most since the Obama era, but you had 81% of Republicans voted, 78% of white voters voted. And so when I talk about trend lines and we talk about trend lines, that was an extremely a challenging electorate for a Democrat to win. But what I look at is when I look at these, and we, I know we're going to talk about judicial races, when I look at things like these council state races, statewide races that don't have a lot of funds, don't have enough money, like the big races for governor, or U.S. senator, president to really get their message out across to all the voters. And even more important, when you look at things like the appellate races, Court of Appeals and Supreme Court, especially the Court of Appeals. And what, what I look at is the trend lines is that despite the fact that Democrats had a really tough 2020 with statewide elections, on average, the Democrats did two points better than we did four years ago in 2016 in the council of state races and, and average council state race and two points better in the court of appeals races. And unfortunately, all of our legal friends will know how important those races are, but the general population has no clue who is on the ballot for a court of appeals race because there's just not enough resources that are ultimately spent for those races. People know who their party is and they look at the name and say, is Jane Smith a good name or John Smith a good name? And they're a Democrat or Republican and I'm going to support them. But the general population has very little awareness of who those candidates are, what they, what the importance of those races. But Democrats did two points better in four years, even in the most challenging electoral cycle that I think we've seen in a general election in a generation. The last point I'll make is between 2016 and 2020, virtually every county in the state that is growing in population, Democrats did better in. 
And now, now I'm not saying that Democrats are going to end up winning places like Union County or Johnson County. The difference between winning 32% of the vote four years ago and then winning 35% of the vote four years later in a, in a solidly red county is a big deal when you talk about statewide races. And it's, to Paul's point, it's that urban-suburban growth that is driving that change. And I want to just pick up on that one thing, sorry, but the point about these changes, Cabarrus County, which do not think elected a Democrat since 1982 or 1984, around those lines. Uh, maybe they had one in the state Senate because the district was, was, was wider. It had the most dramatic shift. It had a 10-point-plus shift to Democratic advantage. That's driven out of the growth coming out of Charlotte, not unlike here in Wake County, where I am today. 30 years ago, 20 years ago, we were winning legislative races in Wake County. We took the Cary Apex area for, for granted. Now we stand up and cheer when we, when we win a race over there. It is a trend line. And what's important here is 2022 is going to be one stopping point into what I would tell North Carolina is going to become. We've called it in the past the swingiest a swing state in the union. Uh, we're going to have ping pong elections moving forth unless one side fails to recognize how competitive this process is going to be. And then that will open the door for the other side to win by default. So what's all this going to mean for those appellate judicial races? First of all, you have to remember what's at stake in 2022. Currently, there is a 5-4 Democratic majority on the Supreme Court. There are two seats up and both are Democratic seats. Republicans have to win one seat. They have the Chief Justice, which they won in 2020 barely. Sherry Beasley lost it by just literally a few, a couple hundred votes. Republicans' goal will be to flip one seat. If they flip one seat, then they retain control of the North Carolina Supreme Court. If they win two seats, they'll have a a large <laughs> they'll have large control of the North Carolina Supreme Court and a serious advantage in it. So I think what you're going to see is more focus from the Democratic side on the on the Supreme Court races than you've ever seen. I think what that looks like is incredible investment from the parties, from the candidates, from donors in these Supreme Court races. And I think you're going to see the largest independent expenditure efforts on behalf of Democratic candidates. And I'd say the same thing about Republicans that we've seen in North Carolina history. I think voters are actually going to be aware this year of who's on the ballot for the Supreme Court for the first time in, in a long time. Let me pick up on that because I think let's put this into context and then Morgan, we can get into this in a little bit more detail, but let's put it into context of North Carolina as a whole. And Morgan's absolutely right. There's going to be more money spent in judicial races in North Carolina in 2022 than we've ever seen. There's going to be more outside money spent in, in judicial races in North Carolina than we've ever seen. However, is it truly outside money? We need to realize that in North Carolina, we're more or less a reflection of the country as a whole because of our strong, robust economy. We now have Apple. We have Google. We have Amazon. We, we, you know, traditional North Carolina-based industries have been replaced by national industries that are impacted by the regulatory policies and by court decisions. And so, you know, really, North Carolina is a melting pot of the country as a whole, and our politics all convenes here. And what we're seeing is that it's going now from U.S. Senate to legis it went it actually went legislative U.S. Senate and now it's going to be going judicial and it's a reflection of who we are as a state. It's not that one side over the other side is trying to get advantage. The interest that drives American politics, almost all of it, has a vested interest here in North Carolina somewhere at some place, and it's a result of, of being a quick, fast-growing state. Wow, that's a big picture, definitely. 
I think that this is probably um, our time for today. And I want to remind everybody that Morgan and Paul are going to be with us at convention in Charlotte on June 18th. And they are going to talk a lot more about all of these things, especially the judicial races, which uh, we know are going to be, as you said, the the biggest spending in in the state's history. Morgan, um, Paul, thank you so much for being with us. And we look forward to seeing you in Charlotte. Thanks. Great. Thank you. Glad to be here. We look forward to it. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Voices of NCAJ. For more information on the North Carolina Advocates for Justice and how to join or support NCAJ, please visit our website at www.ncaj.com.